Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, if we've not yet had the chance to meet. Really thankful to have this opportunity to open the scriptures and see what God wants to teach us today. We are in Hebrews chapter 4. We're going through the book of Hebrews, taking a good long time to do so. We'll be in Hebrews this week. We'll be in Hebrews next week. We're going to take a few weeks off, a little bit of a break for uh, the Christmas season. And yes, I'm wearing a necktie, uh, getting ready for Christmas, so y'all can stop making fun of me for that. But uh, looking forward to celebrating Christmas with you guys, and uh, then we'll, we'll pick back up in Hebrews in January after the New Year starts. Before we dive into the scriptures, I just want to say one, one thing real briefly. Uh, this week, uh, our church community lost one of our members. Um, Phil Smart has been a member of this church community for a, a number of years. He's been battling cancer, and uh, on Friday morning, I received a call that he is now with our Savior Jesus. Uh, I love Phil. Uh, I've gotten to know him over the last year and a half, and uh, I get lots of encouragements on sermons and things like that. There was nobody more encouraging than Phil. If I ever felt like I'd had a bad sermon, I would walk out in the foyer and Phil would come up to me, Aaron, that was the most life-changing thing I've ever heard. So definitely gonna miss that. But with Christians, you know, we might be tempted to say something like he lost his battle to cancer. With Christians, we never lose a battle to cancer because cancer doesn't get the final word Jesus Christ does. And all who put their hope and their trust in Jesus, though they die, yet shall they live and one day Jesus will raise him up. And so I want to dedicate today's teaching uh, to Phil and to his memory. I would ask you to be praying for the family, be praying for his community group. And today's passage is just perfect. It's an invitation to draw near to Jesus. And as I spoke with Phil a few weeks ago, we talked about um, just facing the end of his life. He told me, he said, before I knew Jesus, I was, it was like I was playing in oncoming traffic. And then Jesus saved me. And so he wanted everybody to know to draw near to Jesus. So Hebrews 4. 14 through 16, yeah, that's good. Yeah, Mark. <clears throat> Verses 14 through 16, let's read this and spend some time seeing our great Savior Jesus. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today in all sorts of various states of weakness. God, if, if we were left to our own devices, not one of us could stand. And so we come before you today needy. God, I pray that you would help us to even see in greater measure our need for you. And I pray that you'd help us to see in greater measure the riches of God's grace revealed in Jesus Christ. Help us to take you up on your invitation to draw near today. God, would you guard my lips? Help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth from your word. Would you give us all open ears, soft hearts, teachable hearts that we might grow and be transformed to look more like Jesus, in whose good name we pray. And everyone said, amen. <clears throat> I have a question for you. If you were asked to summarize the entire Bible in one sentence, how would you do that? It's a big book. It's actually not one book. It's, it's multiple books, 66 books put together in a, a sort of mini library, if you were. What would be the thread? What would be the theme? What would be the summary statement that could tie the entire thing together? I had one professor in seminary who, who said it this way, Dr. Allen, I, I really liked how he said this. I agree with him. He said that the Bible can be summed up in three words, life with God. The whole Bible can be summed up in three words, life with God. Think about the storyline of the Bible. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates mankind for relationship. We actually see in, in Genesis 3, before sin enters in, it says that God was walking in the garden, that there was a close fellowship, a close relationship between God and Adam and Eve, between God and mankind. But through Adam and Eve's sin, through their rebellion, a, a 
wedge was driven into a relationship. A, a relational breach took place. It actually says in Genesis 3 that the Lord God drove the man and the woman out of the garden and the close relationship and the close fellowship that they once experienced was no more. And then the rest of the Bible is literally a singular story about God's continual, relentless pursuit of his people to restore right relationship with them. The, the peak, the pinnacle, the climax of the story is when Jesus Christ comes to earth. That's what this Christmas season is all about, that God became man and dwelt among us. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. And then the end of the story, the, the very end of the story, a verse in Revelation, literally, the end of the story is the, the dwelling place of God being with man. It says this in Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's the end of the story. The beginning of the story, life with God. The end of the story, life with God. The, the whole middle part of the story is, is God's pursuit of his people to uh, establish relationship with them. Now we live in this, this time where we don't see this end of the story yet. There still is crying, there still is death, there still is hardship, but we can see, we can see Jesus. We can be invited to draw near to him. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians 13 where the apostle Paul speaks of this current age. He says, right now, we see in a mirror dimly. It's almost like we're looking through a darkened window. You can kind of see through it. You get, you get some vision, but it's, it's darkened. It's not all the way clear. But then, speaking of the end of the story, then we'll be able to see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Sound City, do you long for that day? Do you long for the return of Jesus? Do you long to see your Savior face to face? Now in, in today's passage, there are two commandments or two instructions given. I don't know if you noticed that as we're reading through it, but there, were, there are two instructions given. The first one is this, let us hold fast our confession. We've been seeing that type of instruction week after week for, for multiple chapters now. The, the author of Hebrews is deeply concerned that those who started out on this journey of faith in Jesus Christ, that they make it to the end. He wants them to hold fast so that they can see Jesus face to face one day. That's actually been the major unit of thought for the last few chapters. And, and these verses serve as sort of a, a pivot point, sort of a hinge point, where we're now gonna go into the second major unit of thought. Really, the next five chapters are going to be centered around this theme of Jesus being our high priest. And so that leads us to our second instruction. The second instruction we see, it's in verse 16, says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That's the second instruction. We move from the first instruction, let us hold fast our confession, to the second instruction, let us with confidence draw near. Here's the big idea of this passage today. Even though we're not yet at the end of the story, you and I can today draw near to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Even though we don't yet see him face to face, even though we, we live in this time where we see through a glass darkly, you and I today can draw near to God through faith in Jesus Christ and only through faith in Jesus Christ where we can find grace and mercy and compassion and help in our time of need. Is that encouraging to anyone? I haven't even gotten into the sermon and I'm already encouraged. This is good news. This is one of those passages that just kind of preaches itself. 
That's particularly encouraging, especially if you remember the, the verses that Pastor Shane taught on, on last week. Last week, he talked about the, the word of God being like this two-edged sword that lays us open. It actually says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That is a, that is a fearful verse. That can be a very terrifying word. I remember a, a pastor friend of mine, Chris, he would always say, imagine there was an app that you could download for your phone called I Know Everything You've Ever Done and you'd just take a picture of someone it would just show you all their thoughts, all their motives. That's a terrifying thought, right? You'd never show yourself in public. God knows everything about you. God has seen you in those private moments when your thought life is not honoring to him, when your words have not been honoring to him, when your attitudes or your actions have not been honoring to him, God has seen it all. And yet his response is to move toward us with mercy and grace and compassion and help for our time of need. Do you see how these work together? See how these work together? You're, you're, you could be scared. You read this verse. Oh no, God knows everything. Yeah, and his response is love. So draw near. The words are words of comfort after the, the knife, as it were. In fact, this, this passage, these three verses are full of words of comfort, full of words of encouragement. Actually identified 10 things about Jesus, 10 encouraging words that, that should stir our hearts to want to draw near to God through him. So I'm gonna just kind of start listing them out. I'm gonna list out 10 encouraging things about Jesus. Let's look at these uh, in order. The first one is this. We have a great high priest. Jesus is our high priest. Now, next week and in, in weeks to come, we're going to unpack that idea at great length. High priest, like I said, is going to be the major theme of the next five chapters of the book of Hebrews. So we'll spend some more time unpacking it. But think about this. For now, I want you to at least know the basics. The high priest is someone who served as the people's representative before God. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, if you wanted to know that you were forgiven by God, you had to wait for the high priest to go in once a year into the secret place, into the most holy place. He would go behind a curtain. Nobody could see what was going on. He would make sacrifices for himself and for the sins of the people. And after the sacrifices were complete, he would then come out and pronounce a word of forgiveness for all of the people. The, the role of high priest was incredibly important, and it's a, it's a representative role. It is mankind going before God. Jesus is our, is our great high priest. Jesus is the one who, through the sacrifice of himself, through his own death on the cross, offered once and for all the final sacrifice so that you and I can know forever that our sins are forgiven. Jesus is our high priest. Number two, he's not just any high priest. He's a great high priest. He's a great high priest. At this point in the history of God's people, there had been many, many, many high priests. There is only one Jesus. He is on a whole different level. He's on a whole different league, a league unto his own. He is a great high priest. And as we're gonna see the author of Hebrews is gonna make the case that high priests had to go in year after year after year, keep making the same sacrifices, keep making these temporary uh, atoning sacrifices. Jesus Christ, once and for all, says, forgiven. He's a great high priest. What, what leaders do you look to? What leaders do you like to follow? Jesus is the greatest of the great. There's no one like him. So not only is he a high priest, he is great. Number three, he has passed through the heavens. He has passed through the heavens. This is a reference to Jesus' ascension. After Jesus was crucified, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. It says that he spent a period of time uh, meeting with his disciples, making various appearances to as many as 500 different people. And then he ascended before their eyes into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a reference to that function that the high priest would do. The high priest, think about this, the high priest 
would go into the most holy place of the temple. He would go behind curtains. Actually, we understand there were multiple curtains. He would have to kind of weave his way through almost like a maze and he would disappear from the side of the people. But he's in that place making intercession for the people. Jesus is right now behind the curtain in the most holy place, in the presence of God. Did you know, making intercession for you right now, today, Our great high priest has passed through the heavens. He's high, he's exalted. He's in a place that you or I uh, don't have the right to go, at least not fully, but then he makes a way for us to then enter in. Jesus has passed through the heavens. He's in God's presence advocating for us right now. Think about that. You stumble, you fall, you have a moment of weakness, you sin, you lose your temper. Jesus is standing there in the presence of God saying, yeah, my blood covers that one too. I already paid for that one in full. Number four, it says he's the son of God. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. If the high priest is man going before God, then the son of God is God coming before man. He is the perfect representative of God to us. You wanna know what God looks like? You look at Jesus. You want to know what God would would have us to do? You want to know how how God would live as a man? You look at Jesus. He's the son of God. Jesus is not simply an interesting historical figure. Jesus is not simply a good moral teacher. Jesus is not simply a worker of signs and wonders. Jesus is not simply a social activist who, who clothed the naked and fed the hungry and took care of the poor. No, Jesus is the unique son of God. And again, as we enter into this Christmas season, you'll hear all sorts of things about Jesus. How many of you know that it's like um, National Geographic, Time Magazine, whatever, the the Science Channel, Discovery Channel, they always roll out some new documentary around this time of year and around Easter. You guys know what I'm talking about? There's always some new documentary. Who really was Jesus? Was he really a skinny white European man? No, he wasn't. Got that one right. Good job. But then they always try to talk about him in terms of a historical figure and how he lived his life and how he you know, his, his influence, his upbringing. Listen, th- there, there's some great things to be learned and, and gleaned from the, the historical aspect of, of who Jesus is, but they always get this part wrong. Jesus is the son of God. The Bible makes an absolutely unequivocal claim that Jesus is the one and only divine son of the heavenly father. So as you start to see documentaries and specials and TV shows about the life of Jesus or the birth of Jesus, don't be fooled. Don't buy into the culture's narrative that Jesus was simply an interesting historical figure. He's the unique one and only son of God. Numbers five, six, and seven, they they go together. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he sympathizes because he was tempted in every way and he's without sin. I want to, I want to take just a minute and, and, and take a little detour for just a brief moment. Sometimes this verse, uh, verse 15 here causes a little bit of controversy. Sometimes people say, well, if Jesus was tempted, but if he was sinless, uh, could he have sinned? Could Jesus have fallen into sin? And if he couldn't have fallen into sin, were his temptations real? And and people start to go down all sorts of rabbit trails with a discussion, what's technically called his peccability or his impeccability. That's kind of the big fancy theological terms you'll hear thrown around. Listen, could Jesus have sinned? I want to just address this briefly. The Bible teaches that Jesus is fully God, amen? John 10, the council of Nicaea met, affirmed Jesus is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. The book of James says that God cannot be tempted with evil, that God cannot sin or even be tempted with evil. So if Jesus is fully God, then he himself cannot be tempted by evil and he could not commit sin. There's also something we need to understand. There's a difference between external temptation and internal desire, The Bible tells us that we are led astray because we have sinful desires. We have a fallen, sinful nature. You and I want sin. Whenever someone messes up big time, I've I've talked with people even after they've had affairs or things like that, and they say, well, I, I didn't want to do that. And I usually try to lovingly say, yes, you did. You did want that. 
in that moment, you wanted that affair, you wanted that comfort, you wanted that relationship more than you wanted to honor Jesus. You did want that because you have sinful desires. Jesus did not have sinful desires, yet he faced every type of external temptation that the devil could throw at him. Think about this. Jesus' temptation is more intense than anything you or I have ever experienced. Amen? You and I have never spent 40 days fasting in the desert and then had the devil himself come up and offer you all of the kingdoms of the world. You've never had that. You've never had that. (laughs) Just so we're clear. Jesus faced more extreme temptation and yet he was absolutely without sin. Titus 3 tells us we need to avoid fruitless speculation and controversy, controversy for controversy's sake. Uh, Here's the reason why I believe that Jesus could not have sinned and why it's uh, maybe a little bit of a frustrating conversation to have. The Bible says in places like Acts 2 and Ephesians 1 that God put together a perfect plan, an unthwartable sovereign plan to save sinners like us through the perfect life and the sacrificial death and the victorious resurrection of Jesus. Could Jesus have sinned? No, because God said, this is how I'm gonna save my people. That's how God said, I'm gonna save my people. So we don't need to spend any more time on that. Thank uh, Thank you for going down that detour with me. Here's what the Bible does clearly say. The Bible clearly says that he was tempted in every single way. So first of all, that might be a little shocking for some of you who have a picture of Jesus as kind of floating through life, unaffected and and, 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 and uh, unharassed. Jesus was tempted in how many ways? Every way. So external temptation, he would have been tempted to to withdraw or to self-soothe or to comfort when when people were harsh to him or when he was exhausted or when he was tired. Jesus would have been tempted with with pride to to, uh, put himself into a place of of honor or position that was not yet his to have. That's what Satan said. If you just just come and and bow down and worship me, I'll put you in this place of being the ruler of all the nations of the world, even though he's going to get that through his father. Satan's trying to offer him a shortcut. Jesus would have been tempted with sexual temptation and lust. Think about that. Every type of temptation that you experience, Jesus has faced it. And yet was without sin. That boggles the mind. I haven't, I haven't spent all morning with all of you, but I don't think there has been anybody who has made it through this morning so far and is without sin. If I were a betting man, I would take, I would take that over under, right? We all stumble in many ways. We all have sinful, it's not just our actions, but it's the inactions. There are things we should do and we don't. The Bible says that's sin. It's not just our words, sinful words that we speak. We have sinful thoughts. We have sinful intentions. We want to sometimes do good things, but from a sinful motive. We want to help the poor because we want people to really come up and pat us on the back and tell us how special we are. We are so broken. We are so sinful. Jesus Christ was without sin. And this is particularly important for us because if Jesus is sinless, It means that his sacrifice, his death on the cross, actually does something. It actually means something. If if you and I were to die for our sins, Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. You and I deserve to die for our sins. Happy Sunday. We deserve to die for our sins. Jesus was perfect, sinless, spotless, and yet he died in our place for our sins. That means his death counts for something. That means the righteousness that he has within himself can then be granted and gifted to us. That's exactly what the apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin, but God treated him as though he had all of our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the greatest exchange. This is the greatest gift that the world has ever known. That God takes our sin, places it on the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus takes his righteousness, his perfect life, and he gives it to us when we place our faith in him. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. 
He knew no sin. The apostle Peter reinforces this in 1 Peter 1. He says this, you were ransomed. First of all, you were ransomed. That's good news, Christians. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. A perfect sacrificial lamb. No blemish, no spot, no flaw, no sin. Christian, that's your Jesus. Tempted and tested and tried in every way as we are, yet was without sin. And so what's his response? Now, let me ask you guys a question. Have you ever... um, Have you ever had a coach or a teacher or an instructor or someone who is really good at something and they're really good at something, like like perfect at it, and you're trying to learn how to do it and they come along and they say, oh, just do it like this and they make it look really easy. Anybody ever had that experience? Anybody ever been frustrated by that experience? The the coach or the teacher comes along and says, oh, just just do it this way. And then you kind of feel like you're weak and you're inadequate and you just, I can't, I can't do it that way. I can't do it as good as you. We might be tempted to think that Jesus, the perfect son of God, the one who is tempted in every way, yet is without sin. Then he comes to us, he says, I did it. What's wrong with you people? We might be tempted to to look at Jesus through that lens of the condescending, superior teacher, coach, maybe for some, a parent or a grandparent. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that Jesus shows up with sympathy. Hey, I know it's hard. I know you've fallen yet again. I know that you're struggling with temptation. I know you're going through hardship. I get it and I care. That's what Jesus says. I get it. Think about that. Sometimes you ever had a a friend who's suffering or going through a hardship and, and you haven't had that same experience. It can be hard to know how to relate sometimes, right? You don't want to say like, oh, I know exactly how you feel because you don't. Jesus can say that. Jesus can say, I get it. I've been there. I have faced those same temptations. I have faced those same trials. I have faced those same weaknesses. I have faced all of those things that you faced. I get it. I get it. And I'm here and I love you and I care and I'm not looking down on you and I'm not condemning you and I'm not rubbing your nose in it. I love you and I care. That's the message of Jesus Is that encouraging to anybody this morning? He doesn't just sympathize with our our moral weakness either, but Jesus can sympathize with every type of weakness. The the word translated as tempted here can also be brought, it has a broader meaning. It can sometimes mean tested or tried. It just means all of the hardships, all of the difficulties that we go through. Yes, moral weakness, you and I stumble in sin, but uh, not asking you to raise your hand, but how many of you know financial weakness? How many of you know physical weakness, battles with health? How many of you know relational weakness? You have some strained relationships right now. Jesus can identify and empathize and sympathize with all of those as well. Amen? He gets it. He gets it. We don't like weakness in our culture. American culture doesn't like weakness. Nobody throws a parade for the losing team. Nobody throws a parade for the losing team. We don't like weakness. And yet the Bible clearly tells us the way that we access this grace is through admitting our weakness, admitting that we don't have it all together, admitting that we are flawed. Initially, we access God's grace by coming to him and saying, I'm a sinner and I'm in need of your saving grace. And then God saves us and he redeems us and he starts us on a path of growing in Christ. But as we walk through this Christian life, we continue to repent. We continue to acknowledge our weakness. We continue to acknowledge our need for Jesus. And he continues to minister his grace to us day after day, after day, after day, after day, after day, until the day that we die or until the day that Jesus returns. That's his promise. Number eight, Jesus is seated on a throne. Let us therefore, it says, draw near to the throne of what? Throne of grace. What does a throne symbolize? What does a throne mean? 
means power. It means authority. It means a place that if you're in trouble, you don't want to be. I had an opportunity a few months ago to visit um, a presidential library, and in the, one of the presidential library, George Bush Presidential Library in Texas, they have a full replica of the Oval Office. A full, the furniture, they actually took some of the furniture and, and pictures that were hanging when President Bush was in office, they actually put them there, and you walk in. It's a pretty awe-inspiring experience. This is the Oval Office. What did I do? Why am I here? Because I'm certainly not advising the president on foreign policy. It's an intimidating experience to walk into that, that seat of power, right? How many of you love being called into the boss's office? Oh, yay. <laughs> it's Monday, my lucky day. The throne is a seat of authority and it is a seat of judgment. The Bible speaks of, of God as a king. The Bible speaks of Jesus as a king who has, exercise, who has authority to exercise judgment. But here... What the author of Hebrews is saying is that if you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus, this throne is no longer a throne of judgment. It's a throne of grace. What if you got called into the boss's office and the boss said, how can I help you? What does your family need this Christmas? How are you doing in your job? How can I help you thrive more, right? It's kind of like that, but times a billion. We get to go into the throne room of God, and it's a throne of grace. These are all, these are all very encouraging. I hope, I hope that you're getting a sense for just how good this news is. Number nine, he's full of mercy and grace. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace. Two important words. Mercy. Mercy means not getting something that you do deserve. If the wages of sin is death, you and I have sinned, what do we deserve? It's not a trick question. What do we deserve? Death. God's mercy says that we do not get death. Whew. But grace, do you know what the word grace means? The word grace means a gift. Not only are we not going to get something that we do deserve, but we are going to get something that we don't deserve. Eternal life. We're not just forgiven and then, all right, I don't want to see you anymore. No, I'm going to give you this gift of eternal life. I'm going to bring you into my family, the Father God says. I'm going to adopt you and I'm going to give you a full share of the inheritance with Jesus Christ. Again, using my analogy, it's a, it's a weak one, but it's the idea of you, you messed up really bad at work. You messed up really bad. The boss calls you into the office, says, I'm forgiving that, and also I'm promoting you, and you get a corner office with a view. What? It's like that, but times a billion. It's like that, but infinitely greater. Jesus is full of mercy. We don't get what we do deserve, and grace. We get gifts that we don't deserve. How good is our Savior? And number 10, I was gonna say he's willing to help, but I crossed that out and said he is eager to help. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When are we not needy? I, I fear that... Uh, in our culture, and in particular, kind of in the North Seattle area, there's, broadly speaking, there's a lot more comfort, there's a lot more affluence, there's a lot more security. Kind of the suburban lifestyle is, I've got my garage, I've got my fence, I've got a 401k, I've, I've got things pretty well in order. There's a verse in Revelation where God is speaking to one of the churches, the church of Laodicea, and he says, you, you think that you're rich, you think that you've got everything you need, but you don't realize that you're naked, poor, wretched, pitiable, and blind. You guys, we're always needy. There's a hymn. I need thee every hour, every hour. And, and as you read through this passage, do you get any sense of, man, I'm really gonna have to twist Jesus' arm to help me out in my time of need? Like Jesus kind of sitting there like, make a good case why I should help you today. Do you get that sense? Not at all. He's not just willing to help. He's not gonna let his arm be twisted. He's eager to help. He's willing and eager and able to help us in our time of need.
That's our savior. That's our Jesus. You know, what's interesting as you look through this list, it's kind of a list of contrasts, isn't it? There's this idea of, of his greatness, right? He's a great high priest. He's passed through the heavens. He's the son of God. He's seated on a throne. And yet there's also these, these ideas of his lowliness. He's tempted in every way. He's full of mercy and grace. He sympathizes. Do you see this, this contrast? Do you see how Jesus is both bigger and more high than you could have ever imagined? And he's also more lowly and humble than you could have even imagined? Your Jesus needs to expand. I'll just tell you that right now. My Jesus needs to expand. We cannot think too highly of him and we cannot think too closely of him. It's actually all throughout the scriptures. There's a great passage in Isaiah 57. This is God speaking of himself. He says, this, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. It's big, right? Big God, big God. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Here's the deal. He's, he's big enough to actually be able to help us and he's lowly enough to totally identify with us and be willing and eager to help. Do you see that contrast? I love the way that the Bible holds these tensions together. So, practically speaking, what does this look like? What, do we, what does it look like to draw near to God? The first thing we need to remember, it is through faith alone in Christ Jesus alone. The only way that we can draw near to God is through faith in Christ Jesus. I've had conversations with people about God. It's, it's always um, kind of interesting if I'm on a plane or if I'm maybe sitting waiting to get my oil changed, you always know, strike up conversation. People say things like, oh, you know, what do you do for work? I'm like, I'm a pastor. And then it's like, all right, so do you want to have this conversation right now or do you want to wait for a couple minutes to get a cup of coffee first? Like, are we going to do this? And I've had people say things to me like, well, yeah, me and God, we've got an arrangement. Oh, do tell. I'd like to know the terms of this arrangement. Because what Jesus himself said in the gospel of John is he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't get to God except through Jesus. The author of Hebrews is going to spend chapter after chapter talking about how Jesus Christ is the only one uniquely suited to open up a way for us to draw near to God. We can only draw near to God through Jesus. Amen? We can only draw near to God through Jesus and it's through faith in Jesus. It's through faith. It's through belief. It's through trust. Under the old covenant, to draw near to God, you literally had to pack up your supplies and, and get on a camel or get on a donkey and travel to Jerusalem and go to the temple. That was how you drew near to God was by going to a place. But you and I, where's the temple now? Where's the temple now? It's us. We are the temple of God. How do we draw near to God? Through faith in Jesus Christ, through faith in his life, his death, his resurrection. That's how we draw near to God. That's the starting point. As we continue in our Christian life, though, we, we continue to draw near to God through ongoing repentance of sin, through remembering the gospel, and through rejoicing in his grace. I said this a few weeks ago. That's the pattern of a Christian's life. As God shows you further areas of sin, we repent, we remember Jesus' death and his resurrection, and then we rejoice. If you stop short of rejoicing, you've short-circuited the whole process. Always rejoice in the grace that is yours in Christ Jesus. Number three, drawing near to God looks like the practice of the spiritual disciplines. Reading scripture, prayer, giving financially, singing, fasting, silence, solitude, coming today to listen to the teaching of the word of God. That's drawing near. How many of you know that you're actually worshiping God right now through listening to the teaching of the word of God? You're drawing near. Some of you feel like your relationship with God is distant and one of the first places I would want to ask is, how are you doing in practicing the spiritual disciplines? Some of us are drawing way nearer to Netflix. <laughs> is it a sin to watch a TV show? Absolutely not. But if your relationship with God is suffering, that would be one of the first things I would ask you. Are you engaging him through these practices? 
You've been granted access through Christ Jesus. You've been forgiven of your sins. Now, are you communing with him? Are you walking with him? These things don't make God accept you, but they're taking him up on his offer of close relationship. And then number four is through Christian community, through biblical community. We draw near to God so often by drawing together with God's people. Isn't that interesting? The Bible has all sorts of radical claims where relationship with God is almost equated or or very close to it with relationship with people. Like in 1 John, for example, he says, you know, if you love me, you'll love the brothers. If you hate your brother, you don't truly love God. Whoa. Through Christian community, through Christian relationships, how many of you have ever had an experience where you sensed God's closeness through conversation with your Christian brothers and sisters? That's a powerful thing. It's a powerful experience. That's what drawing near to God looks like. That's what drawing near to God through Jesus looks like. So let me ask one question in closing. Why don't we draw near to God? Why don't we draw near to God? I think there are four primary reasons we don't draw near to God. The final four. First one is this, distraction. We don't draw near to God because we are distracted. Think about what Jesus talked about uh, in Luke chapter eight, the parable of the soils. It talks about one of the types of soil producing a crop that, that grew quickly, but then died off because it was choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. Or in Luke chapter 10, we see this story of of two sisters, Mary and Martha, and Jesus is in their home spending time with them. And they have this amazing opportunity right then to connect with Jesus. And Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him teach, spending time with him. And Mary, or Martha, I should say, is is running around, uh, taking care of all the projects, cleaning, doing all of the, the chores. Not that doing chores is bad, and God certainly doesn't want us to be lazy, but Jesus ends up saying, look, you have this opportunity to sit with me. And Mary has chosen what is better. Sometimes we can be so busy that we don't draw near to God. Sometimes we can be so busy for God that we don't draw near to God. Ephesians 5 says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Some of you need to ask yourself the question more often, am I making the best use of the time that God has given to me. It is not a sin to unplug. It is not a sin to relax. It is not a sin to have some downtime. You don't always need to be work, work, working for for Jesus, right? But you need to ask yourself, am I making the best use of the time? Some of us do not draw near to God because of distraction. Number two, pride. Some of us it breaks my heart to say some of us do not draw near to God because we think we don't need God. That verse like I read in Revelation 3, I mentioned earlier, you say I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. James 4, 6 actually says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do you want to be in an oppositional relationship with God? Just be prideful. Think that you don't need him. You might think that you, you, you're more indifferent, but no, it's actually pride and God is opposed to that. Some of us don't draw near to God because we just don't think we really need him. Some of us in our pride focus on other people's sins. They really need to draw near to God. Remember that whole speck log thing that Jesus talked about? There's a Puritan, John Flavel says, it's easier to declaim a thousand sins of others than to mortify one sin in ourselves. It's way easier to just look at them, look what they're doing, look at that. They're so bad. No, turn the attention on your own heart. Remove the log from your own eye before you try to take the speck out of someone else's eye. Isn't that interesting that Jesus said that? The whole like log versus a speck. He's basically saying, you need to think that your sin is way bigger and way grosser than somebody else's. That's not in my sermon notes. That's just free of charge right there. (laughs) Number three, third reason we don't draw near to God is fear. 
fear. Some of us still think that even though we're Christians, God's throne is a throne of judgment. Some of us may have had fathers or, or mothers who we could not draw near to with our requests. We couldn't come to for help because we would get yelled at or we'd get hit or we'd be treated poorly. I had a friend who um, has been a Christian for a number of years and every time a preacher would start to, to preach about you know, God's wrath, he was internalizing. I didn't realize that until one day he was sitting in my office and he said, you know, he'd, he'd sinned, he'd stumbled and we were, we were talking together and praying. He was just distraught. He says, I know that I'm sitting under God's wrath. I said, Brother, you're a Christian. There's no more wrath for you. You do not need to be afraid of your God. You do not need to be afraid of his throne. It's no longer a throne of judgment. Yes, God is not pleased that you sinned, but his response to you is, let me forgive you. Let me wash you clean. Let me help you. Let me teach you. Let me cause you to grow. 1 John 4 says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out, drives out, gets rid of fear. For fear has to do with punishment. I'm afraid I'm going to get punished, but whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love, why? Because he first loved us. Dear fearful Christian, I invite you today to see your God seated on a throne of grace. Hebrews 10, something we'll get to later. We are not of those who shrink back in fear and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let us with confidence draw near. And the fourth reason why we don't draw near to God is shame. Shame. You're not in the, in the ditch of, of pride. You're not thinking that you're so good. I don't need God. You, you feel like you're so bad that there's no way God could help you. It's like when David said in the Psalms, my sin is ever before my eyes. You're deeply connected with your weaknesses. You're deeply connected with your flaws. You're deeply connected with the ways that you have failed God and you're so ashamed you can't think that you could even lift your eyes to look at him. I'm here to tell you that the promise of the gospel, like it says in Psalm 34, those who look to the Lord are radiant and their faces will never be covered with shame. In Christ Jesus, we are now shame-free. Isn't it interesting how in Genesis, before the fall of man, it says that the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. There was purity, there was innocence. But after they sinned, they went and hid. So much shame. The word of God lays us bare. God knows it all. We're naked and exposed before him whom we must give account. And Jesus says, I'm gonna wash you clean of your shame. Maybe it's not just one of these for you. Maybe sometimes you struggle to draw near to God because of some combination of all four. Maybe it just depends on the day or the week that you're having. The invitation today is to draw near to Jesus. Read this quote from, from Sam Storms. He says this, don't bring with you anything other than your need of Christ don't come with promises and reminders of past triumphs. Don't come with money or some other form of bribery. Don't come with apologies or regrets. Come empty and needy with an open hand and open heart and let God fill you with grace and mercy to help you in your hour of need. I'm gonna invite you just to close your eyes for a minute if you would. God, I pray right now that wherever we are, we would draw near to you through Jesus. God, for those here today who are not Christians, I pray that they would take this first step of drawing near to you through placing their faith in Jesus, for believing the promise that their sins can be forgiven by, by trusting in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. I pray that they would take that first step even right now. Pray a simple prayer of, Lord, forgive my sins, have mercy on me. God, for those of us who are here today who are Christians, but we, we shrink back, maybe we give place to, to fear, maybe we give place to pride, maybe we give place to distraction or to shame. God, maybe sometimes we forget just how amazing this Savior is, 
that he's full of grace, that he's sinless, that he's the son of God, that he's a great high priest. God, would you help us to see Jesus full of grace and mercy, willing to help us and help us to respond now through faith in him. Amen. Church, we're gonna respond now in a variety of ways. The first way I'm gonna invite you to respond is through the giving of your tithes and of your offerings. This is one of those spiritual disciplines that I mentioned earlier. If you're a guest, this is not an arm-twisting moment, but this is an invitation to worship Jesus. If you're a regular, I invite you to worship Jesus through giving of your finances. So if the financial stewards would come forward and collect the offering now, that would be great. There's information about how to give online or even how to text to give on the Connect card that you were handed if you'd like to give that way. And while they're collecting the offering, let me go over a few discussion questions for us this week for our community groups and for our homes. Number one, do you tend to see Jesus more as God, powerful, lofty, or do you tend to see him more as human, humble, and lowly, and why? Number two, let's be vulnerable. Where are you weak? Where do you need mercy and grace? What is your time of need? Let's, let's, what, what if we did that, church? What if we actually showed up at community group and said, hey, I really need help? <laughs> Number three, when you think of Jesus being perfect, do you struggle to see him as sympathetic? Why or why not? Number four, this one is not printed in your weekly, but it is, uh, it is up on the website. This was added late last night. But what often keeps you from drawing near to God? Distraction, pride, fear, or shame? And number five, practically speaking, how can we approach the throne of grace and draw near to God? And how can we do so with both confidence and humility? Couple things to pray. Number one, pray that Jesus would help us to come to him in weakness so that we might receive his grace and mercy each day. And number two, pray for those who are not yet Christians. You know people that need to draw near to the throne of grace, but maybe they have fear. Maybe they have pride. Maybe they have shame. Pray that they would take Jesus up on his offer to approach his throne of grace. We're also going to draw near to God through the celebration of the Lord's table. Here we have bread and wine that symbolize the broken body and the, the blood of Jesus that were, were poured out. It's through his death, poured out. Jesus made sin in our place that we can now draw near. This is for Christians. If you are a Christian, draw near to God through this act of, of worship. And this isn't something that we're doing for God. I want you to remember that this is even something that God is, is serving us. We are being served this meal. We are being served the body and the blood of Jesus. We are being shared his, his grace even as we gather around this table. If you're not a Christian, we would invite you to abstain or become a Christian and join us at the table. We're gonna sing Pastor Joe and the, the band are gonna lead us in a time of worship and singing and we're gonna do something else. We're gonna pray. And we sometimes do this where we'll have the prayer team gather over here and we're gonna do this right now. I'm gonna invite, if you're on the prayer team and you're serving today, will you join us down here right now? Because we wanna pray for you. Some of you are afraid to, to draw near to God or, or maybe you wanna do so privately. I wanna ask you to be bold today and come and pray with one of us down here. Maybe there's something that God's inviting you to draw nearer to him. Maybe there's a sin that needs to be confessed. Maybe you wanna just give your life to Jesus for the first time today. I'm asking you and inviting you to be courageous. Don't shrink back in fear, but be bold and come join us. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you as this time of singing and as this time of celebration is going on. So let's do this, church. Let's stand together and I'll pray and we'll begin our time of response. Father God, we love you. And we know that we love you only because you first loved us. We thank you, God, that the story of the Bible is that we can have life with God. We can draw near to you. Even though we rebelled, even though we went astray, even though we ran, you pursue us, you draw us in. And I pray now today, God, for all of my friends in this room, would you help us to draw near? God, for any who are not Christians, would you help us to draw, for, them, for, for them to draw near to you for the first time, placing their faith in Jesus? And for those of us who are Christians, would you help us to draw nearer to you as we sing and as we pray? And we say all of this in the merciful and gracious name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>